You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 23rd of May 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, remembering Judith Kerr, a titan of children's literature who died today. I just keep drawing, really. That's what I I like doing and uh, something I can do. And, and writing bits, but mainly drawing. My guests, Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Somnath Batabayal, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including another term and an increased mandate for Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, the European Parliament elections beginning today, and whether there is any country in which they are not a populist circus, and the revelation that we've been calling Japan's Prime Minister the wrong name. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the author and broadcaster Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Somnath Batabayal, lecturer in media and development and international journalism at SOAS. Welcome both. And we will start in India, which has released the results of its recent election, the biggest election ever held in the whole history of everything, with more than 600 million people voting. To nobody's great surprise, if to less than universal jubilation, it has proved a thumping endorsement of incumbent Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his Bharatiya Janata Party, who look on course to win around 300 of the 543 seats in the Lok Sabha. Modi can therefore look forward to another five-year term backed by the biggest mandate of any politician on earth, or indeed, really, in all of human history. Um, Somnath, what is his secret? Because this, this is a big win. There is no perceptible backlash against the incumbent or anything like that. He's actually extended his mandate. Just quickly, one thing: it's nine hundred million, not six hundred million, not three hundred. Nine hundred million registered voters, yes, six hundred million or who so voted, who actually voted. voted. Done. Uh, Nonetheless, ten out of ten pedantry. <laughs> <laughs> well, with this win, I think Modi has joined the ranks of two other iconic Indian post-independence Indian leaders, Jawaharlal Nehru and Indira Gandhi, who both managed to bring their party back to power without any coalition. No one else has done this, so that's massive to be mm. counted amongst the father and daughter duo. Um, very different politics there, though. But um, the other thing is Brand Modi has won. This election was fought uh, by the BJP and their allies as a vote for them, uh, vote for the BJP meant a vote for Modi. That's the other thing. And Modi, despite five years in power, has managed to retain his outsider status. Though he's the, they're the incumbent party, he manages to retain his poor boy image, his, uh, he grew up selling tea on the railway platforms, which, you know, there are the questions asked about it, but that image is there. The, and, th- and that's a great image to be able to run against the born-to-rule Gandhi firm that he was up against. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and look at what has ha- happened with the, the Congress. Um, Rahul Gandhi, for the f- first time, the family has lost their Amethi f- seat, which was always supposed to be uh, meant for the Gandhis. They were born to kind of uh, get back there. An outsider, Smriti Rani, comes and blows him away. Uh, Congress, wherever they have gone head-to-head with the BJP, 188 seats they were contesting. Um, I think the BJP has 174 of them. That's 93%. Last time, uh, in 2014, where the uh, Congress was wiped out, 
that was about 86% of <clears throat> where when the BJP and the Congress contested. Uh, except Punjab and Kerala, Congress is nowhere to be seen. What's very interesting is the uh, BJP has come into places in eastern India where they never had any foothold. West Bengal, I mean, they're on course to win about 20 seats, which just seems seemed impossible last year. So, huge thumping mandate and now perhaps is the time where you know the bjp looks set to rule india for the not next five next 10 years next 15 years can the politics of you know minority thumping can those things change can you know can a more secure prime minister become a visionary prime minister well it doesn't really seem that he wants that though I mean, it, it seems very much the case that it's a majoritarian rule, right? And and the reason why, and so the sort of the secular sort of leadership that we've we've looked to, to India to demonstrate, I think, and and which a nation that has been so mixed has done so relatively successfully um, for a number of decades. I think this is a total reversal of that. And and what's really interesting in the rhetoric is that there is no interest in appeasing minorities. It is very much about, I mean, things like the the Citizens Register and, and so on, and even Modi's own history um, as, as mayor does not give any indication that he's interested in a society that that is inclusive in any way. You're absolutely right. But the first speech he gives today, <clears throat> he talks about federalism and respect for the Constitution. Uh, of course, you take it with a huge amount of salt because even in 2014, once the elections were won, his first speech from the Red Fort was that divisive politics and rhetoric like this must stop. Didn't. So I... I I'm not putting but much... That, but that's what divisive rhetoricians always say, though. They never give speeches going, yay, division. Andrew, I'm trying to look for a silver lining. <laughs> 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 it's we'll it's been a very, very bad few days. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but, I mean, just to follow that point up, Yasmin, and Narendra Modi is not, I think it's fair to say, on his record so far, one of life's uh, conciliators and reconcilers. Do, do we have to admit the obviously depressing possibility that there are some politicians, Modi perhaps being one of them, who succeed not in spite uh, of their tendency towards sectarian divisiveness, but actually pretty much because of it? I think, unfortunately, we do. And I think it's sometimes, you know, it is our tendency to look for the silver lining and to think, well, maybe it's not as bad as it seems to be. But sometimes I think we have to sort of face up to the fact that, well, yeah, it is actually maybe this bad. And and then the question becomes, what do we do about this? And I remember, I mean, thinking about this and, and looking and listening to the conversations of a friend, Muslim Indian friends of mine who are sort of saying, well, do we do we leave the cities we're inhabiting? Do we leave our homes because of the bigotry that we're now seeing? And and not only just seeing, but is normalized in a way that has not been normalized in our lifetimes. I, I like people call um, people look at sort of Trump as someone who who's divisive. But I think many Indians, particularly those from minority groups, would say Modi is much a master in that compared to Trump. And so I, I genuinely think that sometimes by by assuming that this that their support is a side product um, or, or people aren't supporting them because of their sectarianism, we need to be wide-eyed and accept that actually maybe this is what people want and we need to figure out a way around that, whether it's changing what people want or saying, or saying that we need to have some sort of other vision that is more compelling. It is a much more difficult ask, but I think uh, we, we need to do that. 
Okay, well, moving seamlessly along on the subject of elections and populism, we will take a look at the European Union parliamentary elections, which are beginning today, including here in the UK, nearly three years after the UK voted to stop voting in them, as has become tiresomely traditional of late with any variety of election anywhere in Europe. These elections are being widely perceived as a referendum on nativist populism, and for all the difference it is likely to make, the campaigns of various nativist populists have reminded us once more that un imaginatively competent career politicians might not be the worst things in the world. Um, And Somnath, I guess to to pursue what we were just discussing then, there have been uh, various gaffes, outbursts, etc. attributed to various nativist populists during this campaign, you know, whether it's Marine Le Pen making white supremacist hand gestures or and any number of others in this in this country alone largely attributable to Brexit, uh, the Brexit party and to UKIP. Does any of that actually cost them a single vote? In it, unfortunately, um, they get more publicity in these days of um, social media and uh, quick images being tweeted and WhatsApped. Um, it doesn't really bother them. That's why Trump gets the popularity drive that he has. Um, at any other time in politics and our history, I think I would have kind of welcomed this shakeup of this old boys club that is European politics, you know, and and the. But these are not normal times, and you cannot kind of think of voting as in protest. We've seen what happened with Brexit. Um, so um, while, as you say, um, that <clears throat> extre- uh, extreme politics uh, on both the left and right uh, have emerged because of what's happening in Europe, still the old boys network, the, at least for this time, will manage to cover the uh, crevices and patch together their majority and continue. But it's a very clear indication that things need to change even in Europe. I mean, ho- however much we have blamed Brexit and Boris and uh, the pol- you know, kind of right-wing politics in the UK, it's a clear indication that things will not go along this way. And there are various reasons for it. Um, Yasmin, this stuff's always weird for me to try and make sense of because I, I will nail my own colours to the mast and say that if, if, if there was a party launched just called the the Dreary Competence Party who campaigned <laughs> on a slogan of you'll barely know we're here, uh, I'd, I'd vote for them in a heartbeat. But is there, again, I'm, I'm trying to possibly trying too hard to find an optimistic uh, assessment of people's attraction to far-right nativist parties... Is it actually the hatred that excites people and the rage that excites people, or is it people expecting their politics to entertain them? I'm not sure it's either of those two. It's something, this reminds me of, um, I went to a really interesting sort of myth-busting seminar recently, which talked about the way we use language and the reality that if you go out and say, there's this myth and we want to bust it, or there's this incorrect fact and we want to tell you what the true fact is, because you're repeating this incorrect thing over and over and over, people actually end up remembering the incorrect thing, right? <laughs> and and so if you've got images of you know far-right politicians constantly on your screens, people don't often remember what they've even said. Said, but it's the familiarity. Oh, I've seen that person's name before. You know, they. I got a strong vibe from them, whatever it might be. I, I genuinely think when it comes to politics, yes, you've got people on the extremes who actually care about the policies. But even people I know who are interested in politics 
couldn't tell you really the difference between the Change UK party or the independents or even if they're the same group. And and so I think I that... I think there's members of the Change UK party who <laughs> couldn't tell you that. <laughs> and that. I mean, that's an indictment, right? So how are people, your average person who's trying to pay the rent, trying to feed their kids, you know, do all that and pay attention to whatever's going on in Brussels? I think genuinely it's... It, we go down to our like unconscious biases. Who are the people we see? Who are the strong images that that cu- come to mind? And okay, you know what? I might put my hat into throw my hat into that ring. Some sort of analogy like that. I mean, I guess you're right in the sense that three years ago, you and I wouldn't have known of Tommy Robinson. Now we do because of all the milkshakes being thrown at him. And s- exactly. same with Farage, I guess. Yeah. And and so, I mean, coming back to your question, I think generally people are wanting some sort of competence. Generally, people want governance that allows them to live a functional life. But nobody really, I think, has... The, the, the trouble is nobody can tell you who the competent party is. And, and that's the struggle for your average voter. You, you, are, you are struggling to pick one, certainly, in this country at the moment. And, <laughs> and, and, and to look at the, the UK's contribution, I mean, bleakly hilarious that it is, to these EU elections. Uh, Somnath, all the polls suggest that the, the Brexit party, now led by Nigel Farage, will, will win this pretty handily, which will be, I guess, pretty unsurprising, unless there is a, a sudden bump in turnout, turnout in the UK for these elections. Something like the Australian elections happen here. Usually very low. <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, but if the if the Brexit party does finish top of this particular poll, does that actually make any difference to anything, really? Uh, not beyond, I think, a nuisance value. Uh, I think it, uh, the national politics and the general elections, which will be coming up in the UK, might n- will not be swayed completely by uh, whatever the uh, performance of the Brexit party here is. Um, but Nigel Farage will get more and more prominence, his party and whatever coalition politics he will try with uh, the next story leader. The, the, I mean, in a, he, he will create a lot of trouble. And as mm. Yasmin just pointed out, more and more media outlets will have to... I mean, the BBC is Telegraph. You know, he gets front pages in Telegraph. Even The Guardian has started to mention him. So he moves into your drawing room conversations I mean, isn't so? Uh, one thing about Farage that I find interesting is that he is the the face of this sort of almost like disenfranchised kind of you know we want to leave Europe, and yet he's a former investment banker, and he's now got uh, some charge for his his friend giving him a four hundred fifty thousand pound gift, and I'm like, I need friends like that. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> who, who among us has has never just been punted half a million quid yeah. so we can carry on living in our townhouse in Chelsea? Ex- exactly. These are questions I ask myself on a regular basis. <laughs> I think, but most popular politicians manage to pull that off. Modi in uh, India. And, uh, Prime Trump, example. Trump being another great example. Is <laughs> basically what we're saying here that maybe we should all get into nativist populism because <laughs> it seems to be where the money is. Uh, I didn't think I follow money that much. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, just a final thought on this one, Yasmin, before we move on. And to return to my own political dreamland of assorted parties of tediously competent anonymous technocrats arguing <laughs> over extremely quibbly, trivial details of policy. Um, the EU, I guess... That's what it's supposed to be. Yep. Has it actually done a bad job of selling itself, especially in the UK, and selling the importance of its elections? Does the EU deserve some blame for the fact that consistently, consistently, barely a third of British people have ever bothered to vote in EU elections? I don't think more than three or four 
UK citizens in a hundred could tell you the name of their MEP if you held a gun at their head. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because I think if you want a bunch of boring technocrats, they're not going to be good at marketing. (laughs) <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so I think it's kind of part of it's part and parcel of of their roles. Their roles are to think about you know deep details about trade policy and get into the weeds and so on. And so it's kind of sadly just really not the best setup for for getting votes. What we do with that, I'm not sure, but I, I think that maybe by the fact that nobody knows about them, they've done a decent job. Or they could just hire Nigel Farage to do their advertising. (laughs) Um, We are going to take a short break now. You are listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Somnath Batabayal. Coming up next, name the Prime Minister of Japan. Wrong. Tired of seeing the same few tedious tourist haunts? Well, the Monocle Travel Guide series has stopped off in 30-plus cities and counting in order to dispense advice on travelling like a local. From the finest spot in which to sip a cocktail with a contact, work up a sweat, or take a dip. Our comprehensive travel guide series are packed with tips, essays, and tidbits for getting the very best from your destination. Monocle's travel guide series is published by Gestalten, the Monocle Travel Guide series. Cities are fun. Let's explore. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Somnath Batabayal. To Japan now and the prospect of an excellent argument starter for any enragingly pedantic pub quiz masters who may be listening. Simply ask for the name of Japan's current Prime Minister and when people answer Shinzo Abe, refuse to award the points and then chuckle smugly to yourself as you bolt for safety down the high street pursued by an angry mob armed with bar stools and pool cues. It turns out that Japan's current Prime Minister is Abe Shinzo, in keeping with the Japanese tradition shared by China and Korea of placing surnames first. Japan's Foreign Minister Taro Kono, or Kono Taro, has asked foreign language media to get with the programme as Japan embarks on the new Reiwa era this month. Um, Yasmin, I mean, it, it seems fair enough if this is what he decides he'd rather be called to call him that, but should there be any, if not resistance, then bewilderment at being asked to go along with this? I don't know. I, can't, I think... I feel very personally attached to this story, and I'll tell you why. Because I, my parents named me Yasmin, right, which is like the Arabic version of Jasmine. But I've always introduced myself as Yasmin simply because it's kind of easier for everyone. And, uh, you know, I grew up in Brisbane, Australia, and Yasmin was a little too complicated for everyone. <laughs> to, I was like, what? No. So in the last year, I've been trying to introduce myself in a different way using the name Yasmin, and people don't get that we're the same person. And and it, it's not that big of a difference, and I am not a prime minister of a country, but it's really fascinating that when you shift even something slightly, a, pron- a pronunciation or whatever, it really puts people off. It really sort of, it, people find it quite jarring. And so on one hand, I can get that the Japanese are like, you know what, uh, the reason that we decided to have a, a more westernized way of doing things was because we were trying to sort of show Western Europe that that we were civilized and so on and so on. But now we've come into our own, and you know we've done we've done our therapy, and we've realized we know who we are now, <laughs> right? Like I can get that, but I can also understand everyone being like, okay, we're really confused, and this is maybe going to cost a lot of money. Uh, well, people are a bit confused because this is something that, as you point out, the Japan started doing some while ago during the Meiji era, about 150 years ago, because they were trying to be more international. And I, I think there's a certain amount of response of, like, why have you not said something before now? 
You know, I, I would like to mention the problems with my name too, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let that be. Um, I, I, I can I can personally relate about twenty seven different ways to pronounce Muller. It, it, it's it's <laughs> way more complicated than it looks, apparently. Well, most Bengali names have been changed by the English, so you know that too. <laughs> Starting with the most famous one, Tagore being there. But uh, I think that two two very clear strands to this, and both need to be accepted. And you know, we don't have to agree to one. One is the anti decolonizing movement, which is you know which plays part in Western you know Western Europe that. And in so as in the institution which I go to, that power has been embedded in ways we think. What whenever we kind of try and deviate from it, you know, it's like why do you need to do it at all? Come on, things are fine. In your homeland, you're referred to as this person. Who gives somebody else the right to change it? Yes, you have changed it once upon a time because of certain reasons. So, yeah, now you're feeling confident enough to say, hey, hang on. Do you mind? You know, this is the way we do it here. Would you mind kind of responding to it? You know, if I call you Donald Trump and not Trump Donald, could you give me the same respect? So there's a case for it. The other, the other pro- the problem with it is that there's a revival of nationalism mm-hmm. worldwide. There's this right wing. So you, you think this is maybe akin to those renaming of Indian cities, Absolutely. for example? Absolutely. You know, this, the, one aspect is civilizational, where you go back to roots to think through philosophically a lot about yourself. That's that's one movement. You know, there's the Tagore and the Gandhi movement in India. And then there's a Modi movement, which is, or the Nehru movement, which is changing everything to Indira Gandhi or Rajiv Gandhi, and then trying to get it back. So both strands, I think, work. Uh, it's a political moment when your foreign minister just before the Summer Olympics says this. So there's a bit of the political moment in it, but we shouldn't completely throw it away as a gimmick because there has been a lot of, you know, how we see ourselves has been defined by the West. And at a point, it's not really bad to stand up and say, no, this is not how I term myself. My father has never called me that. Who the hell are you? Um, Yasmin, I can, I can report that there is there is absolute carnage going on on the discussion page of uh, Shinzo Abe's Wikipedia page <laughs> yeah. uh, about this. But is that is that basically the point? Should we generally come down on referring to people and places by their native names? And then you do get to the where does this stop thing? Do we then have to become those insufferable people who refer to places like Florence and Paris as as the locals would refer to them? <laughs> well, I think, I mean, I'm the slippery slope argument is always there, but I don't know where, like, I don't think that the slippery slope is going to take us to, like, the depths of depravity. Like, I think it's it's <laughs> it's, 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 it's not that sort of long a slippery slope. I, I generally think that if we're interested in respecting each other and respecting other cultures and other civilizations in the same way that we want to be respected, then sure, it, let's try to do things the way that, that they'd want to. In the same way that you might say a tourist is someone who goes to another place and expects to be treated the way they'd be treated at home and a traveller is someone who visits and tries to sort of understand what it's like in that place. Perhaps, yeah, it might be a little bit uncomfortable, but I'm sure it's uncomfortable the other way around as well. And so perhaps it's, we're in this interesting moment where on one hand, yes, there is nationalism and there is um, hyper sort of nationalism that, that can go in, in ways that are very dangerous. But perhaps it's also a moment where we're like, all right, what does a post-colonial society, a decolonized society actually look like? 
Okay, well, let's move along uh, finally with a salute to the children's author Judith Kerr, who has died after 95 well-lived years. Kerr, whose family fled Germany for the UK in 1933, was the author of dozens of well-loved children's books, most notably The Tiger Who Came to Tea and the long-running Mog series. She also wrote a children's trilogy based on her recollections of the rise of Nazism and When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit has since been taught in schools in Germany, the UK and elsewhere. Um, Somnath, we'll start with the, the obvious way to start here. Was Do you in particular have any Judith Kerr memories, reminiscences and or observations? Uh, not in my childhood because um, you know I grew up in another part of the world. Uh, but in the last three years, immensely because of my five-year-old, and I love the Mock series. And I know I watch animation on you know now there's on YouTube you can see this. We read and the Tiger Who Came to Tea, which is fantastic. Um, so my my enjoyment of Kerr has been as a 45-year-old, 42-year-old adult, and then three in the last three years, it's uh, uh, remarkable. And my son loves, uh, loves her books. I haven't managed to tell him that she has moved on. <laughs> what is it your son gets out of them, do you think? Or, and why does he respond to those as opposed to other children's books? Well, I try and not put him on Peppa Pig because of... Uh, uh, God, middle-class England reasons. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... but, but uh, uh, I I don't know I can't I I um, I think kids respond very know very quickly what they like and what they don't and the fascination of a young girl sitting down for food and a tiger walking in. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's an attention grabber. It is and and he seemed perfectly fine with it and he did you know as a two and a half three year old ask that you know would at least a cat or a dog come in for tea. Um, Yasmin, you've you've written for young adults at yes. least and. What do you think the secret is, I guess, for not just literature of, of that level, but also for much younger kids? Because I, I think there's a temptation for all professional authors to look at children's books and just think, come on, there's like 70 words there. How yeah. hard could this be? I could knock this off in an afternoon. <laughs> but, it, but it clearly <laughs> is not that simple, is it? No, the biggest mistake, I think, is thinking that the younger you're writing for, the easier it is. Because... Um, especially when you're writing illustrated books or when you're creating illustrated books because you're what well, you have to be really careful of and I I had a whole detailed conversation with an illustrator and an author recently which is why I have any knowledge on, on this is that you tell a story in pictures and in words and so authors are used to telling all their stories just through words but there's no point repeating what the picture says in words and so that's a mistake I think children's authors or people sort of authors coming into the children's space often mistake and and also authors are not always that good at illustrating and vice versa and so trying to get the right match between the illustration and the and the the vibe and the texture and the colors and so on is quite tricky and i mean ultimately we we th we sometimes underestimate how much young kids and, and, and people understand about the world and often we think we want to tell them stories that we think is good for them rather than just telling stories that, that are good for them or that, that they are interested or capable of handling. I, I did want to ask you both if you do have any particular favourites of your own from childhood, whether Judith Kerr or not and that's basically just so I can make one of my intermittent plugs for the <laughs> beautiful but existentially terrifying Australian children's book The Bunyip of Berkeley's Creek by Jenny Wagner which, I, I, as I was saying before we came on air, I read again as an adult 
a while ago, having not looked at it for four decades and just thinking, what the hell kind of thing is this to put in front of a five-year-old? Because, spoiler alert, there is a happy ending, but wow, do you have to work for it. But nevertheless, I, I, I do recommend it, just not necessarily for very small children of sensitive disposition. Somnath, do you have a particular favourite, one that's stuck in your head? Yeah, Depressed Child, Charlie Brown's... Peanut series, fantastic. <laughs> so uh, you know, and uh, there was Tintin and Phantom too. But obviously, um, given my um, life, uh, like the, the trajectory of my life, Charlie Brown has been the favorite. And uh, I still go back to uh, most of my life's philosophy and thought has kind of come out of uh, Mr. Schultz. Uh, Yasmin, was, was there one that's stuck with your, from your much more recent childhood? Well, Tintin's definitely, I mean, I named my first guinea pig Tintin and my <laughs> yeah. second guinea pig Tintin number two after the first one met his demise. But but actually... You, you could have just gone with Tintin Tin and just kept, like, I could have, yeah. kept, kept adding a suffix. That would have been good. I, I actually read quite a lot of um, an Arabic book called Juha, which is kind of just about this character who really just kept getting himself in, in ridiculous situations. Um, and so it was lots of lessons of my dad being like, don't do what Juha does, right? <laughs> Mo- mostly, I think that that was the objective of that. Um, but I think what's, uh, what's really interesting also about children's books is that um, I kind of, I've recently started buying them again. And like my excuse has been for, you know, the kids of my friends. But really, some of them are beautifully illustrated and they're, they're a bit heartwarming. So, you know, maybe not so long ago at all. Okay, well, I, I will just sign off with also giving a plug for my other favourite book uh, that I was bought as a child that was by an American children's illustrator called Elizabeth Guilfoyle, and it was called Nobody Listens to Andrew. And, <laughs> and, and I'm just mentioning that because, again, spoiler alert, the moral of that book turns out to be that everybody just should have listened to Andrew. Uh, and that does bring us to the end of today's show. Yasmin Abdul-Majid and Somnath Batabayal, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Neelam Nija, our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's The Urbanist. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. I'll be your host for that as well. Midori House returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.